0: Twenty square blocks. 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 Twenty square
1: 20 blocks. Square Twenty
0: rock. square. I'm having a terrible instant coffee. Would you like one?
1: Um. No, I'll be fine for the moment. Just have one for a lift.
0: Yeah, that's a good move. It's not very nice. My guest today doesn't usually shy away from things that aren't very nice. Speaking of which, let me put out a few warnings. If you don't like grisly historical stories, stop listening now, all right? And if you believe in ghosts and wish to continue this belief, just press stop. Because by the end of this episode, Dr. David Waldron, a celebrated professor of history, will drop some logic that may make you rethink things.
1: My particular interest is in the intersection of history and folklore and not so much about the past, but the stories we tell about the past and what they say about us in the present. Mm-hmm. I'm also really interested in bringing up those the underbelly of history, as it were, the history that we don't feel comfortable talking about, the history that we bury, which nonetheless emerges irrationally in the form of things like ghost stories, urban legends and uh, mythologies. Right. And I think that's really important because if you look at a city like Ballarat, we tend to focus on a you know triumphant... It's a democratic narrative with Eureka. We portray a very white goldfields. We portray a goldfields that doesn't look at, for instance, you know the people who came here and didn't make it. The women forced into prostitution after their husbands died of black lung. We ignore those people, and in doing so, we create a, if you like, a gap, a hole. And that hole, you know, by not coming to terms with the darker part of our past, it emerges irrationally. So. In a sense, that's what I'm looking at, bringing out those dark underbelly stories.
0: Right. Okay. So
1: what got you interested in history? See, when it was in, like a lot of people my age. What, when, when were you born? I'm born 74. Good year. What month were you born? That in February.
0: Same year. 74. What date? 28. <sighs> very, very close. I'm on the 26th. Oh, okay. 74. So. Mm. Mm. Uh, so your birthday would be on a Sunday this year.
1: It is indeed, yeah. Take the day off. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
0: um, you were telling me, what got you interested in history?
1: Um, I spent a lot of time in my early years saturated with BBC TV when I was young growing up and the folk horror revival, things like Children of the Stones, and it always seemed quite extraordinary and magical to me. Similarly- uh, Hang on, hang on. P-
0: uh, we're born two days apart, yes. and I don't know what you're talking about. So you're not from Ballarat, are you? No. Right, okay.
1: I grew up in Warragul, east in Gippsland. What television are you getting this? Well, I go home and you, you know, jump on, turn on ABC, and you'd have Inspector Gadget and Cities okay, now, of Gold and now Doctor I'm with Who. You. and I'm with you there. All those, yeah. But you know, I grew up watching lots of those programs and uh, on, on the ABC in the mornings and evenings. And what were the other ones you were mentioning? Well, I've mentioned Children of the Stones, for instance. It's where the uh, kid, the family with the kids, go to the village. It's inside a stone circle. They filmed it in Avesbury, which is inside a stone circle. And you're trapped there. You can't leave the circle. You keep on returning back to it. Right, sort of like a uh, Famous Five type of vibe. Yeah, but with a lot of sort of Doctor Who supernaturalism and science fiction in the background. Oh, mm, sounds all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I grew up saturated with that. I also spent a lot of time in my early years raised by my Scottish grandparents. And in a sense, I grew up with the culture. So when I went over there in 93, it was quite a you know, magical experience to go and see it, visit the places and staying with relatives. You're not committed to sort of doing the tourist trail. You can go out and explore these things for yourself and, you know, visiting particularly the Cairns of Campster. You know, seeing the Standing Stones and things, visiting the old castles, it was quite an intoxicating experience. And I think that really created a love in history for me, whereas otherwise I might have gone into something like um, working in IT. One of the problems we have today is there's so much, I mean, I'll just, you know, I'll equivocally call it bullshit. Yeah. And it's really hard to determine what's actually well-researched. Mm. What is bullshit? You have, before I'm talking about folklore, one of the things that really interests me in my most recent book on the former Ararat Lunatic Asylum is you have the complex history of a site like that. You have the folklore, the ghost stories about the site. And I, you know, talk a lot about ghost stories as a way in which communities um, memorialise traumatic experiences through those stories we tell, and yet all that's also filtered and bastardised through pop culture. Right. And so there's this intersection of the history, the folklore and the pop culture that's sort of in this mutually formative loop. And then what you start looking at is, you know, whose stories are being told, whose stories are not being told. And this ties into that, you know,
0: irrational stories that you were talking about. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Go, you know, if we don't engage with your darker parts of your past they erupt irrationally in things like ghost stories into things like panics um into general anxiety heck in part of it we saw that in the um january 6 semi-insurrection you know this really weird outpouring of irrational bullshit and but that's tied to really deep structured anxieties in u.s culture that they haven't grappled with
0: and where does it manifest itself do you think in our society
1: Well, you know, it manifests itself in ghost stories. It also manifests itself in the um, difficulty with which we grapple with our Indigenous past. It manifests itself in our urban legends like, you know, big cats in the bush. It manifests itself in the obsessive way um, people become polarised about stories such as Eureka Stockade or Ned Kelly.
0: And this is where we can learn about our current day by looking at this past
1: yeah looking at the past looking at the stories looking at this and in particular looking at the stories that aren't told
0: can you sort of tie the connection between these past stories and what we can learn and gain from them today
1: i'll tell you an example there's a little ghost story that's maybe 100 yards from where we're sitting and that's the ghost story of the woman on bath lane Bath Lane. West Bath Which Lane? Which is about a block down that way and to the right. In fact, you can even see it. It's just down past the Phoenix Building. Okay, this now, is scary. In, there's a bank there directly opposite Craig's Hotel. Craig's Hotel, of course, has its own ghost stories. But in Bath Lane, there's a story of seeing a woman's face. And the story of this woman is that she had been um, having an... She was a lady, poor lady from Ballarat East, you know, the slums out Ballarat East. Hey. <laughs> I live that in the same area. she came from those slums she got a job working for a wealthy bank manager um the story was she was having an affair with his son and she heard the bank manager talking to his son about it and the son reassuring him that uh, um, no he had no intention of marrying this girl he was just having a bit of fun and the story is she's so distraught that she committed suicide um slitting her wrists in the bath now on that window is actually inscribed a name abigail scratched in glass 1888 Hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing. That story, I have no idea if that story is actually true or not as written, but the Abigail is actually the bank manager's daughter, not the ghost, even though it's become associated as such. It's not really a place, if you go into that building, where you could actually go and have a bath anyway, right? It's those it bank business premises. Yeah. In this story, you find variations of it globally, right? Every town has versions of this story. Okay. This is an issue that women have always had to face, particularly in times when you're dependent on men for their income, that pregnancy out of wedlock could leave you permanently disgraced or sent to a lunatic asylum or off to a brothel.
0: So Abigail was the one that was involved. Well, she was having the affair.
1: That, that was, that's the way it's presented, but it's not. She was actually the bank manager's daughter. Right.
0: I'm confused.
1: So the story is not true, literally true. The, the writing isn't the name of the girl committed suicide. This story has just emerged and people have put different features together.
0: No, I understand that, but um, yeah. so it's not true. But in the story, is Abigail the one committing the affair? Yes, she's the one having the affair, yes. Right, so it's basically
1: a warning to say, don't do this. Yes, it is. The woman and dad lived in Bungie. There's a house. you always meant to see a woman in blue at the uh, edge of a lake. There's a very little, more like a pond than a lake. And the story is uh, during the English Civil War, her husband died, she uh, slept with a landlord to pay a rent, she became pregnant, the landlord disowned her and she drowned herself in the, the lake there. What you've got is a cautionary tale, one that also reflects the fundamental injustice women have had to deal with, you know. Right, so that's where we're learning some of these things. Yeah. And, yeah, those stories pop up everywhere. Um, One of my favourites is from Melbourne, the story of um, Mabel Ambrose. And the story for her is down on the uh, Yarra River. You see a twisted woman wearing old-fashioned clothing, um, dripping wet, and when you approach, she disappears. The story of Mabel Ambrose, though, she is, if you go onto trove, you can look at the story, the infamous girl in the box. She was... um, 16-year-old girl who was found um dead and crammed inside a two foot by one foot square wooden shoebox, just Hmm. stuffed inside and twisted and broken sealed with a rock on top now it's a very grim story for her um this is actually the the true story that happened to her and in leading her to end up in that box she was uh, having an affair with uh, a 16-year-old she was sleeping with the uh, one of the stable boys She became pregnant. They attempted to do a backyard abortion with a quack doctor who said you could cause a safe abortion through powerful electric shocks to the uterus. And it went horrifically badly. The nurse, when she got an idea of what's happening, left, the lady by the name of Kafka. Uh, Mabel died and she was smothered when they tried to stop her screaming. It's a horrible story. And then they were panicked about what to do. It was a serious offence in those days.
0: It would be a serious offence nowadays, but it probably is. more for the abortion. But today, you could
1: then. legally go and see a doctor okay. for assistance. I see what yeah. you are saying, but what year are we talking? This was uh, 1904. Okay. So anyway, she's dead. They try and stuff her in a sack; doesn't work. They end up using hammers and breaking her apart and stuffing her in this box. It's found by three kids playing on the era. Horrible, horrible story. And make matters worse, when they find the body, at first they think this is a serial killer, but and. Staggering thing They actually put her head Sorry first her body In a glass coffin Then her head on display In a glass box At the city morgue For people to come And look at This is Why would they do that? In theory it's about Identification But I think it was more And people speculated At the time It was more of a warning To um, Women It's about Controlling their sexuality It's a horrible story What do you think? I think it's more of a warning A grisly warning That this will happen to you If you Have sex out of wedlock And how long was this on display for? It said until the, uh, well, they put the head on display when the body deteriorated too much, so presumably a few weeks. So anyway, this, this story, this horrible, horrible story, the girl in the box, the arrow box mystery is sometimes called, becomes a ghost story. And that ghost story is that horrible traumatic experience, you know, beggar's belief is now remembered as a ghost story that keeps alive the traumas of that period. Right. We have a dark past and the way that past manifests itself is in ghost stories and urban legends
0: okay so i'm getting the strong feeling that you don't believe in ghosts no (laughs) okay
1: i'd like to i'd love to see a ghost but um i see them symbolically i see them important in terms of cultural experiences and storytelling literal ghosts no
0: So you still, you still feel the stories, you still have that emotional impact.
1: Yeah, but I'm self-critical. Yeah, yeah okay. You know, you're know, you aware of what that has. And also, being caught up in the sceptic-believer debate can mean you miss the point of what the story is really about.
0: Oh, I think I missed a lot of these points.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, one I'm doing at the moment, I'm writing an article on this to come out soon. 1876 in Portland, at a place called Blackfellas Creek, people talk about seeing a ghost. And they become terrified. Because in the words of the paper, this was a site where black blackfellas and white whitefellas had an altercation and the black blackfellas were worse off. That's the wording they used. I know it's racist wording, but that's how they describe it verbally, literally. People become huge, uh, people have huge anxiety. A guy falls off his horse and breaks his leg. They start calling out huge posse scouring the landscape for this ghost. This glowing in the dark figure painted up, looking like an, the ghost of an indigenous, in that area, Gund- Gunditjmara man. They find, in the end, a woodcutter named Robert Downey. The story is they absolutely beat him to a pulp. He tells them he was just doing it for a lark. So we find, you know, a ghost isn't a real ghost. But it's really interesting how it absolutely terrified the population of that region. You know, where they're going out in posses of, you know, hundreds of people looking for this ghost. It's interesting.
0: How did he... He
1: He was going out, covering himself in -in glow-in-the-dark, paint where is it where's he getting that from he's just purchasing it the dark paint comes out about 1864 in australia okay so there's actually a whole tradition of ghost hoaxes guys growing out and women going out covered in glow on the dark paint pretending to be ghost scaring people what color is this sort of glowing green kind of similar to the little toys
0: and plastic things they have yeah, nowadays like that, yeah
1: okay yeah it was highly toxic stuff so the irony is these people were killing themselves with it now the story of this guy robert downey okay yeah it's not a real ghost but He's just drawn attention to the local guilt people had over the slaughter of Indigenous people. He's drawn attention to the lie they have that no one remembers or no one talked about or no one saw about it. You know, Everyone knew it. The idea of a ghost on one of these sites terrified the white population. It ties into an Indigenous legend of the time too called Namadich, which is studied by a colleague of mine, Fred Carr, that talked about a legend of Indigenous people dying, being born as white people and vice versa. In fact, they actually say that in the paper. Is this an example of black fella die, white fella jump up and so on? They're absolutely terrified and they're losing it over this story. Now they wouldn't lose it unless there was really well-established guilt and anxiety over the slaughter of people in the Umarella, Battle of Umarella and the Convincing Ground and other places um, in Western Victoria. You know, it captures that imagination. It and it terrifies people. You know, these stories have that impact because we have that um, doubt and guilt and anxiety about the dark aspects of our past we don't like to talk about. Uh, A director I really like, um, Del Toro, and he talks about, he said in a sense, he said, the ghost story, a well told ghost story, parallels a detective story. Some sort of rupture has happened in the social order, values, things we feel comfortable with, and in the ghost story, until that's put to right, it continues to re-emerge as Mm. something that inflicts suffering on the living. And, you know, you look at that metaphorically, you know, that's what these ghost stories are. They keep emerging until we reconcile ourselves with the darkness in our own past.
0: This is a lot deeper than I thought you would actually go as far as ghost stories i (laughs) thought you would be more about proving whether they're real or not but you're more about the psychology of of how that impacts us
1: yeah i'll give you a line though one i really like from carl jung and he wrote a book about flying saucers and one of the things he says in his introduction to flying saucers he says any given day thousands of people will look up and see unusual things in the sky some people will look up and see it as a divine symbol, some people will look up and see it as an alien spaceship or whatever some people go off and make a cult the question of what's actually up there is a different one to the way people interpret and grapple with it much like if you actually try and nail someone down to what actually is a ghostly experience, it's a bunch of all sorts of different things that they associate together because of meaning, place, time and context and then they construct a memory of it and that memory grows. And One thing I found really interesting in this is you look at people's stories and a person's story the way they tell it initially will change over time and what they're telling 10 years later will be really different to the story that they remember and told a decade ago
0: I'm starting to think of some of my own stories now how they might have shaped and changed and um...
1: and then what people describe is different like the way people describe a ghost in the 19th century is really different to the way they describe a ghost in the middle ages
0: how what, what sort of differences clothes well
1: okay Middle Ages, You're in the Middle Ages, they talk about ghosts. Uh, They talk about them being physical entities, like they can open doors, smash windows and things. They're usually identified by their anachronistic clothing and they're revealed when you, say, one removes a hood and there's no head there or you get a sense of cold and dread or it suddenly disappears. We don't get this now. No, that's that's a medieval ghost. Now, ghosts change and part of the reason they change is that phenomenon of ghost hoaxing when people went nuts with glow-in-the-dark paint. Now we imagine... Ghosts that are translucent and glowing. Yeah, is this just in this country? This is worldwide. This is worldwide. Yeah, it, so people were, because who, of pop culture spreading globally. So
0: people were painting themselves up as ghosts and wandering around neighborhoods all over the world. Yep. In the in the eighteen
1: sixties. Yeah, yeah. It's global. You know, Czechoslovakia, Boston, England. Globally. Right.
0: Okay. So this is when this sort of
1: this, these are when this, the story this became started. the modern image of the ghost. That combined with the Peppers Ghost illusion, they started doing for plays. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is spirit photography, where you do a double exposure.
0: No, I see what you're saying. Obviously, ghosts should not change just because glow-in-the-dark paint is now available.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that became what ghosts are. Now when we see ghosts, that's what we see. So, okay, hang on. With logic, you've pretty much proven that ghosts aren't
0: real. Yes. And they're just a figment of our collective imagination. yeah. Thanks for listening to 20 Square Blocks. I hope it wasn't too spooky. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with someone you know, and I would love it if you would subscribe. Special thanks to Dr. David Waldron, who lives just two blocks southeast from me. If you'd like to hear more of his tales, you can listen to his podcast, Tales from Rat City. Music by Ryan Goodwin. Check out his other music at virtuallyryan.com. Additional material for the show, written by Anne Murison. editing by the sleepless Ricky Cheno, our logo is designed by Chris Frith, and thanks to H-Studios for the use of their studios. I'm Ben Plaza, and this is 20 Square Blocks.